In 2011, the Russian conceptual artist Nadia Tolokonikova was preparing a lecture with a friend. The two decided they'd speak on the topic of punk feminism in Russia. As they began researching the topic, they hit a pretty big snag. There was no punk feminism in Russia. The lecture was just a day away. They could have gone the easy route and called the organizer and changed the topic. But instead, to have something to talk about in their lecture, they wrote a song called Kill the Sexist, recorded a version of the song in the friend's bathroom with a dictaphone, and anointed the punk feminism group Pussy Riot. The band started as a performance art project. On Pussy Riot's first track, they didn't even have musical instruments. The guitar is a sample. Nadia and her collaborators had to learn how to play the guitar from scratch. So they practiced, at first in a church that was under construction and then in an old tire factory. When they performed, they wore beanies called balaclavas pulled down over their faces. They cut holes for their eyes and the mouth. The mask preserved their anonymity, but it also served as an invitation. Anyone could be in Pussy Riot. Nadia formed the band in the fall of 2011. By February 2012, they planned their biggest performance yet, a show in Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Savior. They arrived with brightly colored masks, dresses and tights, and then they performed what they called their punk prayer. Virgin Mary, please get rid of Putin. They kneeled, punched their fists in the air. The whole thing was caught on tape, and that tape caught the eye of Vladimir Putin. Nadia was charged with hooliganism, motivated by religious hatred or hostility. The performance cost her two years of her life in a prison labor camp. But in the process, her art, and her words inspired people all over the globe. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer about the hidden gems, hotspots, and dark alleys in the world of communication. Nadia Tolokonikova is a Russian conceptual artist, now bona fide musician and political activist, but she is clear. The work she does as Pussy Riot is art, not entertainment. Because, as the quote goes, art is not a mirror held up to reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. The line is from the playwright Bertolt Brecht, but it's one that Nadia believes in. Her work today focuses on prison reform, political activism, and warning about the dangers of government surveillance. For her work, Pussy Riot was named one of the 100 women of the century with supporters and fans that include Marina Abramovich, Madonna, and Sir Paul McCartney. Nadia, thank you very much for making the time, especially as you're currently suffering from COVID. Thank you. The story of Pussy Riot is about power. You basically created Russian punk feminism yourselves. How long did you think that the idea of Pussy Riot might last? So we were thinking about like half of here. I didn't think it's going to last longer because our goal was to just perform at the most important public places uh, around Moscow. 
We started from a subway. Uh, we performed on the rooftop of a bus. Then uh, we performed on the rooftop of prison. It was a series of performances that was dedicated to glamorous places. And we wanted the people to stop for a second with luxurious consumption and to pay attention on politics. That was our message. How did people respond when they saw you on top of a bus in the subway? People just took their mobile phones and they, they started to film us. Most of the people who saw us in public transport they were really, really amused. Yeah. When it comes to more sta status, glamorous places, people were not as happy because we invaded one fashion shoot. Um, and, you know, we didn't do anything terrible. Whose fashion shoot was it? Oh, I don't know. It was just, um, just some fashion shoot. Just to give a perspective, I didn't use money. I would have like 10,000 rubles, which is like $200 in my pocket for months. I would not spend it and I would live on just stealing food from supermarkets. And that's the same way I would acquire my clothing. You were just stealing it? I was selling, yeah, I was a shoplifter for six years. The reason why people do that, because we don't have universal basic income, and I think that would be really cool to have because we should have to be able to live in dignity without and and pursue projects that uh, fulfill us without having to steal because it's not uh, ideal. And, and like now I would definitely not do that. But at the moment, I was uh, growing a child. She was born when I was 18. We didn't have any any help, any kind of protection for our parents from our government. Where were you living? I was living in dormitory, dormitory of Moscow State University. I was studying philosophy in Moscow State University. And at the same time, I was doing my uh, creative work. I was, um, I was making performances since uh, 2007, since I was 17 years old. So, yeah, combining all of that, it was completely impossible for me to study, to grow a kid and make my creative projects and at the same time <laughs> to have a steady job to get money. So like, when you asked me which kind of fashion brand was that, right. I have no clue. <laughs> I was really far from all that world. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know, anyone could be in Pussy Riot. When you invited people to take you up on the offer of putting on a mask and being part of Pussy Riot, did people take you up on it? Did other people join Pussy Riot and become members, you know, in their own minds at least? Absolutely. Now we have hundreds of members all around the world. It's so cool. Like, I, I don't really understand people who build parties with um, authoritarian kind of leadership because, you know, at some point, even when you feel like you're burned out, when, um, when you're not as effective as activist as you want to be and you want to just take a break for a couple of months, there are, you know, dozens and hundreds of people who will keep pushing the ideas. Yeah. Two of my friends uh, right now are facing two years in jail. Uh, they're members of Pussy Red. Their name is Masha Lechina and Lucy Stein. They're a queer, queer couple. There was an appeal in a court and um, Lucia... Right now, instead of house arrest, she cannot do certain actions. And also, she's not able to meet other people from the same criminal case. And the criminal case started um, earlier this year because of tweets and stories about protests that Masha and Lucia posted. And I did it as well. And so, so did many of my friends. All of us are in this group of people who are being prosecuted for that. But I just happen not to be um, inside Russia, so that's why I'm, I'm not under house arrest. 
But yeah, Masha Alekhina, she's still under house arrest and she can't see her girlfriend. They saw each other yesterday. So if you go to my Instagram, you can see me posting, like happily posting pictures of them kissing. But it was just like once in the last four months because um, they they just, they can't see each other under the law. And I think besides hating activists, you can see here that Putin's regime actually hates people who are queer and uh, they're doing their best to be sure that they, they're not going to be together. I mean, a horrible reminder that this isn't, this isn't stuff that's happening in the past. This is very much present, right? And um, I've heard you talk about the game with regards to politics. I just think it's an interesting word because... Is that how you tackle things? Is that how you come at uh, a project? Is it a game? Is it about winning? Is it about learning? What, what's the what's the game for you? A game is any activity that is not boring. I was a person who would get the best marks in school, and I feel like I lost ten years of my life because I was just trying to be the best and win, not in a game, but in some kind of uh, authoritarian competition. I, I'm really big fan of uh, games theory of education. Have fun and at the same time achieve some good goals and educating yourself or making activism, then I'm here for it. I wrote a book um, a few years ago. It's about importance of joy and playful attitude in activism because it feels to me like some people, they're uh, not being drawn to activism because they believe that activism has to be dead serious. And it has to be sometimes because sometimes, you know, we deal with people dying and it's not funny at all. It's really sad and they have to be serious. But, you know, at other time you, you deal with, uh, with more, with brighter issues and you can actually afford yourself to laugh and smile. And like, I feel this um, effect sometimes even when I step into clubhouse rooms, people just start to be so dead serious. And though before they were laughing and I'm like, I, I feel like sometimes I mean, have to tell them like, hey, look, the fact that I'm activist doesn't mean that you have to be so dead serious around me all the time. Because like, uh, then I'm not going to have any fun in my life as well. I can see that. I mean, I can see that that's also could be quite a burden that people think, oh my God, you know, it's it's Nadia, she's an activist. We've got to take this really seriously. <laughs> what I've been really enjoying watching recently is how, you know, Pussy Riot has gone on to mean so much more than I think uh, it, it perhaps was originally intended. And more recently to really be at the forefront of a new wave in the, in the digital art world. What I'm in particular talking about is your... Um, music video for your song Panic Attack. You recently sold your Panic Attack music videos as four discrete NFTs. Could you explain what an NFT is? So my idea for it is that it creates digital scarcity, right? When Picasso draws his painting, we know that it's an original because he drew it. He did it with his own hand and we know it's because of uh, he physically touched it. It's impossible with digital art. So this token that the artist issues to a collector gives collector a right to say that this copy of digital art piece is an original. And it's the same as Picasso drawing with his own hand, ensuring that it's exclusive. What I think is really interesting personally in the NFT space is that for artists, they're able to connect with the community and allow the community to get involved in the artwork. And what I've seen you guys doing with Panic Attack 
another piece of work is producing work that is put up for sale through foundation in your case, right? The platform is called foundation. So in the real world, you could imagine that that work would be put up for sale just you know, on Christie's or um, in a gallery. And then um, rather than you know, simply allowing somebody to come and take that piece of work off the shelf and hide it away in some warehouse somewhere, hoping that it not only gathers dust, but increases in value, you allow the community to take part in it and to be able to sort of co-invest. And then most importantly for you guys to actually be able to earn recurring revenue or, you know, recurring income in the future as the work gets sold and resold. When was it that you first sort of dived into this world of NFTs? Um, so I'm part of this circle with Asad Malik, who directed Panic Attack. And also he started this startup called Jadu, and they make holograms of artists from Pussy Riot and Poppy to Lil Nas X. And Mac Boucher, who uh, happens to be a collaborator of Grimes and brother of Grimes, uh, he also works with Jadu. And we just started to discuss NFTs naturally because, you know, Mac did uh, this drop with Grimes. And I was hearing more and more uh, from them about this new animal that's called NFT. They told me that Grimes and Mac had really a great experience. And I know that even for Grimes, it was uh, really groundbreaking because it can seem like she she's up above in the sky, but artists are not getting paid that much even when they are so known as Grimes. She said that she was paid the, the biggest amount of money she, she ever got. I believe that she gave a lot of it to um, a small global environmental think tank. So I think um, she actually did quite a lot of good with the money that she raised. Yeah, absolutely. So when I say about getting money, it's never just about you know, getting money and, and, and buying a yacht for yourself. It's just it's more about generating money and being able to do something that you think is good with this money. So when it comes to us, we funded a shelter for the victims of domestic violence. A big part of the money was just split between key creatives, including musicians who participated in the piece. It's not a practice that everyone follows because I know that especially bigger artists, they believe that the sale was made just because of their name. So they tend to just pay hourly to their collaborators. I'm not going to give any judgment, but this this is not how we wanted to go around it. Do you, do you see this as an extension of your activism? Yeah, absolutely. It allows so many people who never seen any income from their art. And I'm not talking about crimes right now. And I'm not even about Pusaret, because we've definitely seen some. But I've seen in this space so many digital artists, that are um, artists who've been working for years with big stars, but they would never sing uh, money themselves or they sing not a lot of money because they've been paying hourly. So I know a bunch of artists who would collaborate with big stars, but their name is not even under the the work. So I'm really happy that they, they have these platforms now to take this power back. Is it a new audience for you? It is like completely new audience. It's like it's like I I turned three sixty. <laughs> I don't know. Um, this was one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to step uh step in because honestly, when I've heard from Mark about Grimes drop, I was like, well, I mean, yeah, I'm not Grimes, so I shouldn't expect anything like that. So when we were putting our first bead, um, I, you have to make a reserve price. I remember Acid was like, oh, yeah, I should do probably like two ETH which is like $4,000. And I was like, no, I mean, they're nuts. Like nobody's going to give 
like $4,000 for this work. Um, so I was like, yeah, we should do one. And he was like, it's fine. Like, it's, it should be too easy. If nobody buys it, I'll just buy it. I was like, okay, <laughs> if you say so. So I was a completely yeah. unsure. But and, w- and what did it sell for in the end? 174 ETH. Which is how many dollars? Uh, $360,000. From what I see happening on Twitter, on Foundation, the platform, on the way that the work is being sold, and then the way that you're going back and bidding on other artists' work yeah. that you appreciate in the community too, they see, the audience seems to love you. Maybe they just discovered you, but I think they've known you for a while. Well, I love them too. Uh, but I think that's the beauty of the space. I mean, when I just stepped in... Um, um, NFT community existed for for a second, but the mainstream community, NFT community, as we know it now, I mean, it went mainstream just literally a few months ago. So we're all learning as we go, and we all feel new, and that's why it makes us more loving, I guess, or more open minded, and like we're just ready to, you know, take on new ideas. And that's what I really love about this space. I don't I clearly don't see it in music industry or in film industry, um, or in uh, model industry. And I've been talking to all of those or in even traditional arts galleries, museum industry. Because Pussy Riot had conversations with um a bunch of galleries and um, well, they all said us that we have to create an object on a constellation or a poster or like some artwork that we can see and touch. And then we can talk with you about that. But it, what I loved about NFTs, I, I really believe it creates a revolution. And I may sound overly excited, but I don't think I am because it states that um, digital art is art. And that was a problem that us and so many other artists were facing for years because, you know, when something is digital, it's marked as purely entertainment in just a blink of an eye. So what the NFTs community does is helping artists to mark their digital art as art, which I think is beautiful. It's only a matter of time before you know the world has got their head around the fact that particularly heightened through COVID, that we're spending more time online that our worlds are increasingly virtual. And if 20 years ago we all rushed to buy shop.com or pussyriot.com and the price went from $1 to $1,000 to sometimes a million dollars for a domain name, mm. the same will happen in this space. Yeah. And how about the environmental footprint of it? I know this is a conversation that um, sort of bounces around. There are different opinions of it. But with regards to anything that's got blockchain, crypto, and particularly NFTs attached to it. Are you concerned about the environmental footprint? Are there things that you're doing actively to you know, try to offset the footprint that, um, that the NFT space has? I am really conscious about that. It was the reason why I almost didn't do it. But then I've been reading a lot and I realized that people who are making the blockchain, there are conscious about that as well and they're actively working on fixing it and I know that Ethereum uh, is going to move to Ethereum uh, East too pretty well and uh, I'm in conversation with Vitalik Buterin and uh, we're going to have a chat with him actually um, on Pussy Rides YouTube but yeah the reason why we we're setting up this conversation with Vitalik is exactly because I want to talk with him about our environmental costs of blockchain and how soon it will be fixed and because I know that um so many my fellow artists they are really fascinated about NFTs but they don't feel like they can step uh, in the game because of environmental costs 
But also, um, if you are one of those artists, you can also investigate other platforms that use um, proof-of-stake coins that are consuming less energy. For a lot of performance artists, it's very difficult to earn money, with the exception of Marina, Marina Bromovich, that is. And I learned quite a lot, actually, in the, in the interview that you did with Marina with the New York Times. Hearing her talk about the importance of vulnerability, I thought was really educational. Thank you. I love Marina so much. And she has this beautifully motherly uh, sort of relationship with you, which is also very sweet. I hadn't really noticed or understood how important it is to be that vulnerable. It was really amazing uh, for me to hear these words about love and vulnerability from Marina. And I know that she has been investigating um, that side of human experience for a while, but you know, this is really special to hear it from her firsthand uh, because she's known as a good example of an iron lady, <laughs> something that Margaret Thatcher could be, but didn't become. So Marina Abramovich is that. She's, she's the strongest woman role model for so many girls and, and boys and um, non-binary people. But, you know, after years and years of torturing herself sometimes to in order to achieve a goal that she would, like artistic goal that she would put in front of herself, she started to focus more and more on the importance of love and vulnerability. And this is really significant to me. So it encouraged me to um, investigate it even further. I'm really deep right now in topics of mental health and, right. you know, managing your emotions. And like, if you tell me 10 years before, 20 years old version of me that I'm going to be talking so much about mental health and depression, I would think it's not true. It's not me. I was thinking that depression is not about me because I'm a strong person, right? So like, it's it's arrogant as hell, I know, but we have our moments of arrogance, all of us. So I was that person. But the older I get, the more I understand that being a strong person doesn't save you from experiencing depression or other mental illnesses. So is that factoring into the work that you're doing right now? I'm working on a lot of video and audio pieces that touch somehow topics of mental health. There is video and sound is called Toxic. It's about toxic relationships, and I ended up in in those three years ago. I think it came from the same uh, the same problem. So I was like overly confident that because I am a strong person and I can deal with anything that comes. Exactly because I was thinking like that, I was an easy victim for an emotionally abusive person. Basically, what he did, he was challenging me. He was like, "Hey, can you take this challenge?" Can you can you take that challenge? Like like, and I'll be like, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, yeah, scream at me. I I understand you. This is fine. I understand you. I'm a strong person. I I I can forgive you because you know strong people, um, they forgive. That's what we've been told. I was in those relationships for two years, and I know that I'm far from being the only one who speaks these days on such issues, but I think it's so important to give another voice because I can't believe why, but when in 2017, I was a victim of emotional abusive relationships. I couldn't find that work of art that I would see and it would tell me, okay, now you have to really take care of yourself, of your boundaries. It doesn't matter how much you can take. It really matters how much is it healthy for you to take 
So uh, this song Toxic is about that. And it's about this dynamic that is being created within Toxic Couple. Because it's me and Doreen Electra who is on this song. Doreen is like one of the most thoughtful and, and, and genius human beings I've seen in my life. They are hyper pop star, I'd say. And so when I said that I want to write a song on this topic and I showed them my notes, they were like, yeah, it would be, it would not be fun if I would just, you know, uh, say literally the same as you. I want to play the role of another person, of an, an abuser, and actually show this dynamics that makes it trapped in these relationships. And she's saying, but I'm feeling toxic. Don't think I can stop it. Not sure if I want to. And I know that you want it. And this weird mesmerizing moment of self-destruction that brings us to um, toxic relationships was beautifully captured in Dorian Electra's part of Toxic. You know, with the money that you made from the sale of the four panic attack NFTs, you are going to support a shelter for domestic abuse victims. Yeah. But you're also going to fund more of your work. What else can we look forward to? Um, well, I guess about NFTs, just a couple of words. We are going to do a drop in May, I believe, with uh, Mark Boucher. And he's making collaboration with um, a number of artists and uh, pussy writer, the lucky ones with who he's collaborating. And uh, in June, we are making our own drop on Nifty Gateway. What else have you got up your sleeves as either Nadia or Pussy Riot? Um, well, currently I am in Kiev, uh, Ukraine, because I'm investigating Chernobyl and made a first trip in there. I always wanted to visit Chernobyl and I initially I didn't want to make any plans before I would see the place. I always wanted to shoot something there, but I didn't want to be just a person who would commodify or objectify Chernobyl. So I was like, oh, I have to go there and and see if it's even cool to shoot something in there. And I went there and I I talked to some people who are kids of those who were the um, nuclear reactor when it was blown. And I spoke with them and they seem really open to artists coming in and, you know, rethinking because um, they feel like it can actually help them to grow through this trauma and I'm going to learn more and I'm going to come back and shoot for a few days something that will combine an installation uh, later we're going to add some AR but you know I'm going to disclose a lot but it's going to be highly religious experience. So are you going to go back into your controversial church work in combination with NFTs? I think you'd be pretty groundbreaking in that space if you were to come up with something uh, religious in the NFT space. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> well, we are going to work on like religion of matriarchy. It's not like a final idea or anything, but I'm uh, thinking about something like what if there was an alternative history after the explosion in Chernobyl and so it started the matriarchy religion and the matriarchy church that was built in Chernobyl and then started to spread all around the world and the world seems to actually enjoy it. Nadia, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate that you have COVID right now. So we're more grateful than we could ever be. It was a pleasure. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you to Nadia for daring to do what you do and inspiring some healthy rule breaking. 
Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is the amazing Rachel Swaby, who is never late, with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush. Our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Meritans. And thank you to the wonderful studio in Amsterdam Center Sound. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, or form a feminist punk band in Nadia's honor. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. If there's anyone you think that we should interview, I would love to hear from you. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. We'll be back next week. <laughs>